Section 6 of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. The Beginnings of the Catholic Revival, Part 4. In France, on the other hand, notwithstanding its early association with Paris, the company had to contend with many difficulties. It was here regarded as an essentially Spanish growth. Moreover, during some of these years, 1542 to 1544, France was again at war with Spain. Under Henry II, the order enjoyed the goodwill of the crown and of the cardinal of Lorraine, but both the Parliament of Paris and the university strongly resisted a royal ordinance sanctioning the establishment of a Jesuit college in the capital in 1550, and an agitation was provoked, which, after a formal condemnation had been pronounced by the Sorbonne in 1554, spread throughout the country, and for a time almost entirely stopped the labors of the order there. According to Jesuit historians, the dismissal from the company of Pastel, whom Margaret of Valois called the wonder of the world, contributed to this result, 1551, but of its general nature there can be no doubt. The jealous pride of the university, the national instincts of the bishops and other clergy, and the mocking spirit abroad among the people were the real obstacles in the way of the society, whose members were only here and there tolerated in the realm until the beginning of the great religious wars warned the friends of the papacy to conciliate its most consistent champions, 1561. After this, the fortunes of the order in France varied, but the national antipathy against it never came to an end. Of all the generals who have ruled over it, not one has been a Frenchman. In the neighboring Low Countries, the progress of the Jesuits was likewise slow, though at first Lefebvre gained a following in the University of Louvain. Even after the resignation of Charles V, it was only by slow degrees that Philip II was prevailed upon to admit them into the country, 1556. They were, however, greatly favored by the regent, Margaret of Parma, upon whom they exercised a direct influence through her confessor, and thus their colleges at Louvain and Antwerp were opened, and the former place in particular became a center of their operations. In Germany, their success was continuous in the Catholic parts of the empire. As early as 1540, Lefebvre arrived in the capacity of theologian to the imperial ambassador at Worms, whence he proceeded to Ratisbon. His reports made a great impression upon the Pope, and probably did more to stimulate propagandist efforts than was effected by the religious conferences in the direction of reunion. On Lefebvre's removal to Spain, he was succeeded in Germany by Leger and Bobadilla, of whom the latter had in Italy labored in common with Cardinal Pole at Viterbo. The political difficulties of their task began when, after the Schmalkaldic War, Charles V sought to impose the Augsburg Interim, 1548, upon the empire. Bobadilla had to be recalled as a sacrifice to the displeasure excited in Charles by his successful exertions in urging the Catholic princes to refuse acceptance for themselves of the compromise, one-sided and temporary as it was. On the other hand, greater confidence than ever was felt in the Jesuits by the Orthodox 
Duke William the Fourth of Bavaria, fifteen o eight to fifty, whose example was after some hesitation followed by his successor Albert V, fifteen fifty to seventy nine. Under him, as will be seen, Ingolstadt, though it never became a purely Jesuit university like Innsbruck and Dillingen, was to a great extent given up to the order. Into the hereditary dominions of the House of Austria, the Jesuits effected an entry in 1552 when King Ferdinand invited to Vienna two Jesuits from Ingolstadt, Peter Canisius Canes, rector of the university, and his companion Nicholas Gandamus. Canisius had already done good service at Cologne during the struggle against the Archbishop Hermann of Wied, in which the church ultimately proved victorious, 1547, and soon obtained considerable influence over King Ferdinand. From Vienna, where he held an important position both in the university and in the community at large, he undertook a series of special missions in Upper and Lower Austria, and supplied the Collegium Germanicum at Rome with promising novices. In Bohemia, where their influence was to be so momentous at a later stage of the country's history, the Jesuits first arrived in 1556, and in defiance of public opinion, maintained their hold upon the Clementinum, their college at Prague, and upon the churches which gradually fell into their hands. In Hungary, the settlement which they effected in 1561 was merely transitory. Such had been the progress of his company in this part of Europe that not long before his death, Loyola resolved upon the foundation of an upper German province at the head of which Canisius was placed in 1556. It was he who at the religious conference held at Worms in 1557 destroyed such illusions as still remained concerning a possible reconciliation between Roman and Protestant doctrine, and who pursued the same line of argument at Trent. When he resigned his provincial aid in 1569, he had contributed more than any other man to transform the spirit of German Catholicism into one of unyielding intolerance. The textbook of the preachers and teachers whom his energy had planted through Upper Germany was his Summa Doctrinae Christianae, 1554, which is said in the first hundred and thirty years after its publication to have run through four hundred editions. Canisius's visit to Poland in 1558, when he reported the country deeply infected with heresy, led to no positive result, nor was it till after the close of the Council of Trent that the order was established in this kingdom, 1564. Its entry into Sweden belongs to a still later phase of the religious reaction. At the time of the death of Loyola, 1556, the order numbered something like 1,000 members who were distributed through 13 provinces. Of these provinces, the majority were Spanish or Portuguese, or formed out of the colonial possessions of these kingdoms, three Italian, one French, two German. The formation of one of the last named, however, which was to have its nucleus in the Low Countries, still awaited the approval of Philip II, while the objects as well as the methods of the founder of the order were clearly marked out for his successors. 
They well knew that apart from the distant missions to which Xavier had up to his death in 1552 devoted himself in India, Japan, and China, their work must be carried on in even wider orbits than it had been under their founder, and that above all, they must never cease to act on the offensive. Lyonnais, the second general of the order, was fully adequate to the task with Loyola's boldness, energy, and astuteness. He combined the subtlety of mind which enabled him to give to Jesuit theology an elasticity of its own, while holding it fast to its cardinal principles, including the infallibility and the universal episcopacy of the Pope. The subsequent history of the Church of Rome by no means uniformly shows the papacy in harmony with the Jesuits, but it very rarely shows the latter inconsistent with themselves or with their task of compelling Christendom to turn back with them. In the contest now waged by Rome, she had resort to the old as well as to the new engines in her arsenal. Like the Jesuit order towards which it long continued unfriendly, the Inquisition, in its modern form, was Spanish in origin. From Aragon, where the institution had, with an eye to the wealth of Judaicizing Christians, been revived on the basis of a union of authority between the Dominicans and laymen in the confidence of the crown, it had reached Castile, and under Ferdinand and Isabella it had flourished throughout Spain, and had extended to Majorca and Sardinia. Early in the 16th century it had been forced upon the Sicilians, but at Naples a successful resistance had been offered to its introduction. During the whole of this period, the attitude of the papacy towards the Inquisition had been neither sympathetic nor the reverse. The spirit of the Renaissance age and the absence of any current of religious feeling strong enough to overwhelm political considerations produced in the papal governments of this period an unmistakable spirit of tolerance. But the financial advantages to be gained from the renewed organism sanctioned by Sixtus IV could not escape his successors. Hence, the frequent conflict between papal engagements towards the most Catholic sovereigns and papal exemptions granted to those upon whom the judgment of the Inquisition was, with the eager concurrence of these sovereigns, about to descend. Hence, reclamations, reservations, and disappointments hardly less cruel than the tender mercies of Torquemada. After some early struggles, Spain pressed the instrument of her sufferings closer and closer into her flesh, resenting repeated papal attempts to mitigate its severity. Nor were the efforts of its agents or the sufferings of its victims diminished under the sway of Jimenez, 1507-18, although this great man was not blind to the Christian principle underlying the common saw as to prevention and cure. Under Adrian, who succeeded Jimenez as inquisitor-general, the combined jealousy of King Cortes and Pope threatened the Inquisition with the loss of a great part of its powers, but the temper of Charles was changed by the revolt of the Castilian cities, and the Inquisition came forth from this season of trial with its strength unimpaired. During his five years of office, the hand of the good Adrian was as heavy upon the culprits as that of any of his predecessors had been, and it is probably an estimate below the fact, according to which during the forty-three years of the first four inquisitors-general, the Spanish Inquisition 
burnt more than 18,000 persons, besides putting over 9,000 to death in effigie and sentencing over 206,000 to diverse non-capital penalties. To Adrian was also due the establishment of the Tribunal of the Inquisition in the East Indies and in the New World. On the appointment in 1523 of Adrian's successor Manrique, Archbishop of Seville, and afterwards Cardinal, hopes were entertained of a more lenient conduct of the Inquisition. Toward the Morescos there was indeed an occasional show of politic moderation, though in the main the Inquisition worked steadily toward the expulsion of the entire Moorish population from Spanish soil, which, when accomplished in 1609, permanently impoverished the country. But there was no general relaxation of activity or rigor, and at the time of Manrique's death in 1538, although Charles V had temporarily deprived its jurisdiction of certain privileges, the Inquisition had spread a network of not less than 19 provincial tribunals over Spain and her colonies and had established itself, in 1536, across the frontier in Portugal. This was the period in which Lutheran books first found their way across the Pyrenees, but it is yet only outside their own country that Spaniards such as Juan Valdez and his brother Alfonso, or again such as Alfonso Liurio and Michael Servetas, are found in sympathy with or even in advance of the ideas of the Reformation. Under the general late next but one to Manriques, that of Fernando Valdez, Archbishop of Seville, 1547-66, to 66, the Spanish Inquisition assumed the stereotyped form belonging to it as an agency of the Counter-Reformation. From the time when Philip II solemnly undertook the protection of the Inquisition at the famous auto de fe of Valladolid, October 5, 1559, he completely identified himself with the institution. But already Charles V had in his last years become a convert to the methods as well as the principles of the Inquisition, although he wished their name to be eschewed in Flanders, and although he had formerly for a time curtailed their jurisdiction in Spain. Both sovereigns contrived to put the Inquisition to very useful governmental purposes, but above all, the religious uniformity at which it aimed seemed to them the surest guarantee of political as well as of religious unity. Thus protected and fostered by the temporal power, and furnished with new powers and privileges by Pope Paul IV, 1555 to 59, the Inquisition crushed Protestantism out of Spain, where about the middle of the century its roots were probably more widely spread than has been sometimes supposed. Its chief centers seem to have been Seville and Valladolid. In the former, Rodrigo de Valer, a young nobleman impassioned by the enthusiasm of moral conversion, was confined to a convent where he died. Among men of learning charged with heretical tendencies, Egidius recanted, Ponce de la Fuente died in prison. At Valladolid, the establishment of a Protestant community is ascribed to Carlos de Ceso, and thence these opinions spread to the neighboring parts of Castile and Leon. Those who undertake the laborious task of accurately following the merciless winnowing machine in its operations may perhaps succeed in distinguishing between the prosecutions of Lutherans, Calvinists, Alumbrados, and Dejaros, quietists, 
which filled the archives of the Spanish Inquisition. On the one hand, it flattered the national pride by scorning all consideration for the foreigner, who, whether ambassador or merchant or common mariner, found himself subjected to its control and often exposed to its penalties. On the other, it excited that official self-consciousness which made a Lope de Vega take pride in placing his style of familiar of the office upon the title pages of his books, by showing perfect fearlessness of either temporal greatness or spiritual dignity, and by subjecting to the processes of its examiners princes, prelates, ministers of state, and members of religious orders. Indeed, the chief concern of its operations was with the clerical world, from archbishops and bishops such as, above all, Carranza, Archbishop of Toledo, who, on account of his Commentaries on the Christian Catechism, 1558, was subjected to an arrest of 17 years' duration, not interrupted even by the declaration in his favor of the Council of Trent, to supposed irregulars such as Ignatius Loyola and Teresa de Jesus. These examples sufficiently show how imperfect was the harmony between the movement of the Counter-Reformation as a whole and the Spanish Inquisition, albeit they so largely made war on common adversaries. End of Section 6